All right, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. The Gospel of John, chapter 20. In just a moment, we're going to start reading in verse number 11. And as you're finding your way to John, chapter 20, remember, let's pray for um, Reese and Caitlin Gratz as they continue to transition uh, to London, England, and get acclimated to uh, their field that the Lord has given them. So let's remember them in prayer. Let's lift them up to the Lord in prayer. Also, let's continue to remember to pray for our nation. Uh, you should be receiving emails from uh, Angela, uh, my secretary, every day in how to pray for our nation. Also, I believe that Brother Bob has some prayer guides for Muslim nations, and we need to pray for Muslim nations. So that there are three, as three points of prayer home Homework that you had this week. Pray for the Gratzes, pray for uh, the Islamic nations and Muslim people all around the world, and also pray for our nation. Because I don't know if you know this or not, I don't know if you've come to this conclusion, but our nation needs prayer. Amen. Okay, so we are in the book of John, going through the book of John. We're, we're getting ready to end the book of John. And on June, Sunday, June the 6th, we will begin to study the apocalypse, the book of or the vision or revelation that the Lord, the Spirit of God, gave the Apostle John. And so we're closing out the book of John. And what's interesting about the book of John is after the resurrection, just like the book of Luke, John does not just close down the book, but he kind of lingers in the living room and he talks a little bit more about what happened after the resurrection. And what John does is he basically says Jesus has risen. He is the resurrection. He made good on his claim to be the resurrection. But then he goes into post-resurrection encounters with his disciples. And so that's what we're going to look at in closing out the book of John, is we're going to look at the post-resurrection encounters that Jesus had with his disciples. Now, next week, we're going to look at doubt. We're going to look at Thomas, or as some people kind of inappropriately call him, doubting Thomas. Boy, Thomas is really going to let us have it when we get to heaven, isn't he? What an unfortunate time, doubting Thomas, all right? But we're going to look at the rest of the story and how the resurrection of Jesus Christ help the doubts of Thomas and prayerfully help our doubts. But this week, we're going to look at disappointment, disappointment in life, unmet expectations, unfulfilled hopes. And we're going to do this by reading about the encounter Jesus has post-resurrection with Mary Magdalene. And we're going to start reading in verse number 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, what? And isn't that great? Isn't that good? Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
and that he said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord for his people. And if you are glad, say yes. You know what? Everyone has been disappointed in life. And it would be absolutely ridiculous for me to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever been disappointed. Uh, some of you have been disappointed as you came to church this morning. Some of you are disappointed right now. For whatever reason, you may be disappointed. It may be the color of my vest. It may be that I am wearing a sweater vest one more Sunday, but that's my business and not yours. So you can live in your disappointment. Amen? Amen. All right. And so you may be disappointed even right now, but pretty much every day, multiple times a day, we're going to be disappointed and for various reasons. And disappointment takes on a wide spectrum of intensity. Um, you could just be disappointed in someone's, what someone says to you today. You could be disappointed that when you go through the drive-thru after church today, you get the wrong order. That never happens, does it? Never, not at all. You may be disappointed that someone didn't put the lid down. You may be disappointed that your favorite ball team lost an important game. And, and there's more serious disappointments in life. You may be disappointed with a politician or a political group. Now, I know none of you have ever been that way, but it's going to come, and I'm just warning you, it's going to come, all right? I mean, there's disappointments. There's disappointments um, in marriage, a lot of disappointment in marriage. A lot of people are in love with the idea of a wedding, but not in love with the idea of marriage, and therefore it brings a lot of disappointment into their life. They're disappointed in their spouse. They're disappointed in their children. Um, they're disappointed in unsettling diagnoses. There's disappointment in the death of a loved one. And some disappointment is reasonable. It's rational. Um, a lot of disappointment is irrational. It's, it's unreasonable, totally. And one way to determine if your disappointment is rational, irrational, sinful, or not sinful is to understand that all disappointment is the result of unmet expectations or unfulfilled hope. I mean, that's basic. I mean, that's simple. But all disappointment, all disappointment is, is a result of unmet expectations that you have or unfulfilled hopes that you have. I mean, if you're, if you, uh, if your expectations are not met, you're going to be disappointed. If your expectations are reasonable, you will probably have a reasonable amount of disappointment. If your expectations are sinful, um, then your disappointment and how you react, how you unpack that will be sinful as well. Now, here's something to remember. The degree of your disappointment is directly correlated to the degree of your expectation. The degree of your disappointment, and folks, this, this is elementary stuff, is directly correlated to your degree of expectation. Let me give you a story. Uh, several pastorates ago, um, there was a person that came to my office, and this person didn't come in and start weeping. This person came into my office weeping, almost un uncontrollably. This person was convulsing. that They were weeping, you know, so much. And, and so after this person settled down, we, we started talking. And this person, you know, had spent a lot of time um, in, in, in uh, collegiate work, in uh, post, you know, graduate work and so forth. And, and this person's spouse did as well. And this person was so upset because they thought that all of this education would lead to prosperity. And not only were they disappointed in that they were still in the same small house, they didn't have much, and whatever they, they made, the spouse would spend it away. And so this person was greatly, greatly, greatly disappointed. 
because her expectations were greatly irrational. And not only that, but because of that, her expectations in marriage were just obliterated. And this person just wept and wept and wept and wept. And it all went back to unreasonable, sinful expectations. Now, we are to have you know, proper expectations and proper trust in life. But one of the marks of spiritual maturity is how we handle the disappointments in life. And, and s- some of you this morning are, are not very good at handling disappointments. Um, some of us are, you know, seasonally are not very good at handling disappointments because we expect so much out of things and we expect so much out of people. You know, those things and those people can't rise to the expectation. I'm going to tell you something. If you're constantly disappointed with people, you need to check your expectations and see if they are grounded in Christ. And one of the marks of spiritual maturity is how we handle our disappointments in life and how we manage our expectations. And for the disciple of Jesus Christ, we need to allow Jesus to teach us how to control or manage our expectations and to heal our disappointments whenever those expectations are not met. Or we will slip into you know, other emotions like bitterness and anger, uh, being jaded, uh, lapsing into despair, depression, anxiety, you just name it. I want you to turn to James chapter 4 and starting in verse number 1. I want you to look at where high, irrational, unreasonable expectations will lead. Uh, James chapter 4 verse 1, if you're not there, don't worry about it. Let me read it to you. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire or you expect and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask, or you think wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so this morning, we're going to look at how to manage our expectations and how we should allow the Lord to heal our disappointments. I need this this morning, and I think I'm not the only one. The first thing we have to understand is who is Mary? Who is Mary Magdalene? There are six Marys in the New Testament. So therefore, we, we can tell that Mary is a popular name. I mean, you know, I should get an award today for being Captain Obvious. All right, It, it is a very, very popular name. And I have given you a list. I think it's in your notes. I have given you a list of all the Marys that are mentioned in the New Testament. We're not going to go down through that list. But let's, let's zero in on the person there's a central character, one of the central characters of our text this morning, and that is Mary Magdalene. Uh, a lot of times we, we say that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. There is nowhere in the New Testament that says that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Uh, we get that from three, uh, from inferring three things um, whenever we study the Bible. Number one, the Jewish Talmud infers that the city of Magdala um, was known for its prostitution, and that is where Mary was from. That's why we call her Mary Magdalene, because she was from the city of Magdala. We believe that to be true. And so a lot of people take that inference from the Jewish Talmud, and we say, well, she must have been a prostitute. Well, we, there's no evidence of that. Not only that, but, but we confuse Mary Magdalene with a lady um, that Jesus forgives in Luke chapter 7. But again, that's an inference, and there's no evidence of that. 
And then we look at John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, and we think, that's Mary Magdalene. Uh, when, when Jesus saved this woman from being stung, that, that's her. But there is no direct evidence that that is Mary Magdalene. And so who is she? And this is very important for thinking about disappointment and the resurrection. So, so who is she? What we know of Mary Magdalene, the first account of her, is found in Luke chapter 8. If you want to follow me there, that's fine. If not, that's all right. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse number 1. It says, Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. Now, the twelve were the disciples, obviously. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. We don't have to read any more than that. And that's how Mary Magdalene comes on the scene. Jesus healed her of seven demons. Now, curious minds like to know why seven demons. And so I looked this up. I spent way too much time on it. Why seven? Well, some commentators believe it was because there were what? Seven demons, all right? But most commentators believe that the word seven there is used, you know, to describe a magnitude. Uh, one commentator said it, it's probably more than seven. She was mega-possessed. Mega-possessed. The, the amount of demons that had possessed her were, were just great. I mean, just mega. Now, take a minute. And we, we, we think about that, we read that, and, and we just move on. But take a second, let's just slow down, let's get into a rest stop for a minute, and let's think about the impact that that had on Mary. Are you all with me this morning? Are you with me this morning? Let's, let's think through it for, for a second. If she had more than seven demons, one is enough. She was probably marginalized. She was rejected. No doubt, by society, probably by her family, right? That would be a smart thing to conclude. She was scorned. She was probably abused, just like the demon-possessed uh, girl. Um, in what is it, Acts chapter 16, that, that Paul you know, cast a demon out of her. She was probably abused. Um, uh, people probably thought, well, this lady is absolutely beyond redemption. And they treated her inhumanely. Now, just to drive it home even further, what if Mary Magdalene was a member of your family? How would you have treated her? You probably would say, let's don't invite her to Thanksgiving dinner. You know how she acts. You know how she gets. There's no hope for her. We're washing our hands of Mary. It's just, no, let's just don't go there. You know, what if this woman approached you and your family on the street? You know what you would do? You would put yourself between her and your children, probably. Why? It's because she was mega-possessed. She was probably treated inhumanely. She was probably pitiful and hopeless. And then what happens? Jesus comes to town. Jesus steps in, and all of a sudden, her world is turned around. He flipped the switch, and darkness fled. And brothers and sisters, you know, we all could testify about the day Jesus came to our town and changed our life, and rightly so. But the thing about Mary is she never forgot it. I pray that we will never forget the day that Jesus saves us. 
And not only that, you know, she, she never forgot it, and she was never not thankful. And, and I pray that we'll never forget, and I pray that we will never be not thankful for what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. But she loved him. She followed him. She became a disciple. She helped meet the needs of Jesus and the disciples. She was there at the trial. She was there at the crucifixion. She came to the tomb to anoint the body. She just wanted to do one more thing for this Messiah man um, that had changed her life. She loved him. And I think what's interesting is whenever you read the text, she loved him so much she was ready to take on the gardener. I mean, she was ready to take him on. Where have, where have you put him? I, I mean, this is passionate. Where have you taken him? You know, tell me so, so I can go get him and probably give him a, a proper burial. And so she loved him. And now her faith is dead. Her hope is dead. Because she thought her Messiah was dead. And he had been taken. Let's talk about Jesus for a moment. Now, we might think that Mary and the other disciples were ignorant of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And a lot of times that's the way we approach the Gospels. And sometimes I get in that that frame of mind, you know, the poor, ignorant disciples. They were not ignorant. Over and over and over again, Jesus teaches them about his impending death and also his resurrection. Um, You see this in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 17. You see this in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Luke chapter 13, John chapter 2. And and I tried to count this week, and again, I probably spent too much time on this. I counted in 15 times, over 15 times, Jesus Christ taught them, just recorded in the gospel, that he had to die, but yet he would rise again. And so Jesus taught them probably more times. And, and, And the problem is, is this, they heard Jesus, but they weren't listening to Jesus. They heard what they wanted to hear. They saw Jesus not just as, you know, um, as a cosmic Messiah. They saw Jesus as a nationalistic Messiah. They saw Jesus as the one who would, who would bring them out of the, of the oppressiveness and the tyranny of the Roman government. And all of his disciples wanted a place in that earthly political kingdom. Just look at the actions of Peter. Look at the actions of James and John. I mean, did they not wrestle, you know, with who was going to sit on the right hand? And they even got mama involved in it. Bunch of mama boys, Amen. And so they saw him as this nationalistic figure, this temporal type figure, um, who was going to just, uh, just drive the Roman government away, and Israel could be Israel, and they wanted a place in that political kingdom. And this is even shown in a, in a very stark way in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus. You remember the road to Emmaus? There, there's two disciples who are walking down the road to Emmaus, and Jesus you know, comes up beside them and starts walking with them. This is after the resurrection. Have you all read the Bible? All right, Luke chapter 2, y'all remember that? And Jesus is walking with them. And Jesus starts talking to them about himself. And this is what they said in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And that's exactly right. He was redeeming the lost, but they wanted another redemption. That's what they heard. Jesus was talking to them, I am going to die, but I am going to rise. I'm going to experience crucifixion, but I am going to be resurrected. But what they were hearing was so political and so nationalistic, and their minds were so clouded 
that the disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't even recognize Jesus when he walked with them. And you know what? Mary and the disciples were looking at their concept, looking for their concept of Jesus that did not exist. Did you hear me? They were looking for their concept of Jesus that did not exist, and that led to devastating disappointment in their lives. Now, this is a great reminder for us. Let me just ask you a question this morning. Who are you seeking? Now, come on. Don't give me, don't give me some pat Baptist answer. No, seriously, right where you're at, don't, don't look at your spouse. Don't look at your spouse for an answer. No, no, no. Right here. Who are you seeking in life? For your hope. Who are you seeking? What are you seeking? Are we really seeking Jesus? You know, we, we can sit here and, and, and what a wonderful, you know, worship set we had this morning. Clay, thank you for that. And we can sing the songs and we can even quote scripture, but the question has to be, who are you seeking? What are you seeking? You know, we, are we really seeking Jesus or are we seeking what we want and calling it Jesus? And I, th- I think a lot of times that, that's the way I am. I don't know about you, but I'll put myself in the circle. A lot of times I'm seeking what I want to seek and I make it spiritual and I call it Jesus. Don't call it Jesus if it's not Jesus. And that's why a lot of people, a lot of Christians are, are, they, they have no victory. I mean, I mean, they are so disappointed. I mean, I mean, they're just, you know, um, they're grouchy all the time. They're critical of everything. Um, I mean, it, it, why? I mean, because they're seeking things other than Christ. And so what are we seeking this morning? What grounds your expectations of life? And so Mary comes to the tomb and she is devastated. Devastated. But then for a second time, starting in verse 14, Jesus entered Mary's life and radically changes it again. In verse number 14, let's read that one more time. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and said to him in Aramaic, rub bone, I. For a second time, a second time, Jesus enters into her life and radically changes it. But this is a resurrection change. And notice immediately, I mean, just like sun hitting frost, immediately her disappointment instantly, instantly disappears. And the resurrection made all the difference in Mary's life. It made all the difference in her disappointment and probably the rest of her life, her expectations. And according to our text, there are three ways that Jesus makes a difference in our expectations and disappointments. I want you to hang on to these this morning, okay? Three. Three ways that Jesus controls or manages our expectations and heals our disappointments. Number one is Jesus as teacher. Jesus as Rabboni. Number two, Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And three, Jesus as Lord. Let's repeat those again. Number one, Jesus manages our expectations and heals our disappointments by being our teacher and by being our Rabboni, by being the resurrection and the life in our life. 
and also by being our Lord. First of all, let's look at teacher. We all have expectations, and we can't get away from it. It's just it's human nature, and we should have healthy expectations. But we can manage our expectations. But better yet, we ought to allow Jesus to manage our expectations. And in order to do that, we need to listen to Jesus. Would you all agree with that? No, we'd be. We actually need to listen to Jesus, not just study the Word. I mean, listen, there's nothing like studying the Word of God. But we need to listen to what the Word of God is teaching us. Teaching us about what our expectations would be and how we should handle those things and those people and those events that disappoint us. And we can't go through every verse. We can't go through every scenario. But let's take a couple of cars out and let's take them for a test drive, shall we? Number one, let's just go to Proverbs chapter three, verse five. Y'all know this. Y'all know this verse. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Do you think that that little verse or those two little verses would help control your expectations in life? I'll wait. Absolutely. I mean, that's why I quote this to my kids all the time. And that's why I should quote it to myself all the time, not just my children. Trust in the Lord. I mean, what more can manage our expectations of life? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, your finances, your dreams, your aspirations, what you think life is going to be like, or you think what you want life to be like. Let's take another car out of the, out of the lot. Y'all ready? Go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Here's a good one. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse number 25. Now we're talking about allowing our teacher, Jesus, our Rabboni, to help us manage our expectations. Well, this is good. I really don't want to read this, but we must. Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not um, of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles or the pagans seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Now, you're talking about expectation management. You know what Jesus is saying there? You all act like a bunch of pagans. You worry about clothing. You worry about this. Now, when he's talking about worrying, he's talking about, you know, worrying so much. That's all you think about. What am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? And back in Jesus' day, a lot of people are on the verge of starvation all the time. What am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am I going to, you know, what is someone going to say about my outfit Sunday morning? I mean, I mean, I mean, we worry about these things. We worry about material things. What if I don't get this second house? What if I don't, what if I, this? And 
And what if I don't have this car because somebody else has this car? And Jesus is saying, don't wrap your life up in all of these things. Why? Why? A sinful expectation. And these things will disappoint you. And there's nothing wrong with having nice clothes. There's nothing wrong with eating nice food. Amen? Hallelujah. There's nothing wrong with having a car that can get you from point A to point B. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house. But here's the control of your expectation. But seek first. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? Mary, what are you seeking? But seek first the kingdom of God and His rightness, His righteousness. And all of these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And it's not just things, but it's people. How do we manage our expectation that we put in the people? Matthew chapter 22. Let's take this for a test drive. This morning, Matthew 22, verse 37. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is pointing back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. Is it not? Seek first the kingdom of God. Love God with all of your heart and soul and mind. And, 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 what, and what Jesus is talking about is the whole person. It's holistic. Seek God with everything in you. Love him with everything in you. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to stop right there. And I think the point is clear. That in order for us to manage our expectations, we need to allow ourselves to be taught by our master and our teacher, Jesus Christ. And whenever we have loaded our expectations sinfully in things and in people, and we come to the realization that, you know, we put too much trust in this person, we put too much trust in, in this thing, you know, we, we don't have to sit there and just, you know, lie in our bitterness, in our anger. No, brothers and sisters, we need to confess that. We need to repent of that. And, and, and I say again, and I shall say again, praise God for First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does it not say that? <clears throat> and he will forgive us of our overloaded expectations. Go to him. Confess that. Keep seeking the kingdom of God. Keep loving God. Keep loving your neighbor because he has already atoned for your godless expectations. And we have a lot of godless expectations. And if your disappointment is not, was not predicated upon godless expectations, and you're disappointed, we need to remember a couple things. Because of the resurrection, He will never leave us. He lives, and He lives in us. Jesus Christ will never leave us, abandon us to our unmet expectations. Jesus Christ will never desert us to the island of unmet expectations. Though He will never leave us. Our expectations will leave us, but He will not. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, nothing, nothing 
can separate us from the love of Christ. Do y'all believe that this morning? Do you, all right, well, next time you get disappointed, then preach that to yourself. Nothing can separate us. I'm disappointed. This person didn't act the way I thought they should act. Um, I'm wounded. I'm hurt. Um, I'm dismayed. But hey, I know that he will never leave me and he will never forsake me because of his resurrection. And really, at the end of the day, that's all that matters. In fact, in verse number 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Why is Jesus going to ascend to the Father? Why? Why? One of the reasons why is to pray for us, to intercede for us. And so he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us. And not only that, but he's praying for us. I've said this at almost every funeral I have preached um, in the last 10 or 12 years, because I think it's extremely important, and it's very powerful that Jesus Christ is praying for us. And not only that, go back to Romans chapter 8. The Holy Spirit does the same thing. When we are so disappointed, we can't articulate how we feel to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is already taking those groanings and moanings to the throne of God and making intercession for us. Isn't that a great God? Goodness gracious. And so because of the resurrection, he will never leave us. He is with us. He is in us. And he is praying for us. And number three, because of the resurrection, your unmet expectation is not the end of your life. Now, I'm not whistling past the courtroom. I'm not. I promise you I'm not. But I have had a lot of people talk to me and say, Aaron, my spouse has left me. I just can't go on living. Yes, you can. Well, so-and-so, yes, you can. Your unmet expectation is not the end. Why? It's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen on that one? I feel rather alone up here this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul is going through his great thesis about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I lost my job. I'll never get over it. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if something devastating happens to me in my life, I expect you all, now don't be mean about it, but come preach that back to me. Someone told me a story about a church that was going through some very difficult times. I can't remember who told me this, and I can't remember what the context is, and sometimes that's very dangerous, but I think I'm on safe ground to just go ahead and repeat what I heard this person say. Okay? The church was going through a very difficult time. They were losing church members. They were aimless. They were listless. Um, they were unmoored. And, and, and they brought in a consultant. And a consultant came and met with the leadership of the church. And the leadership of the church began to complain and whine. We, you know, we don't have this. We don't have that. Blah, 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 blah. And the consultant said to them, hey, look, folks, your sins are forgiven. Jesus has resurrected from the grave. You're on your way to heaven. What more do you need? He wasn't being trite, I don't think. That's, a, that's really an overgeneralization. But there's some truth to that. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your uh, labor in, in the Lord is not in vain. I, I got to go. I got to keep going. Y'all are slowing me down. <laughs> Last point, James chapter 4. James, he's kind of tucked in uh, behind Hebrews. James chapter 4, remember that he is our Rabboni, he is our teacher, we need to hear from him, let him manage our expectations, he is our resurrection, you know, uh, he is our hope in the midst of, of just devastating disappointment, and then we need to remember he is Lord, uh, Mary calls him Lord, he is called Lord in these crucifixion and, and resurrection narratives, and we need to remember as we go through life, that He is Lord. He is the cosmic calendar keeper. He is sovereign. You may think you're in control, but you're not. He's in control. He's in control. Listen to what James says in James chapter 4, verse 13. Remember, Lord, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Is that true or what? You know, the other day, can I just stop and say this? The other day I had a punch list. I'm a list guy. Rarely do I complete a list, but I got them. I'm better than you. Anyway, I got list, man. And I, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna complete this list. I mean, it was like five things. I got like a half of one done. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. It's a very, very simple thing. People used to sign off their letters, Deo Valente, Lord willing. Go ahead and make your plans. That's fine. Seek your ambition you know, and your dreams. That's fine. But the end of the letter, we always need to put that Deo Valente, recognizing that the Lord is in control. He is in control. And whenever you look at that, and you go back to the beginning of chapter 4, let's read that again. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You did not put the Deo Valente at the end of the letter. Uh, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he made us to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Aren't you glad of that? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be... Um, Wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt. 
Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He will, um, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, you talk about expectation management. You know, Mary went on probably to experience a lot more disappointments in life. That's just, that's just life. It's Christian life. We don't have some magical moment where, where God just heals us of never being disappointed again. That's, that's not in the Word of God. But you better believe that when Mary ran up against those disappointments in life, her mind went directly back to that tomb where Jesus called her name, Mary. Mary. I'm right here. I got you. Put all your hopes back in me. For I am the resurrection, and I am the life. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This morning, let's bow our head and close our eyes, and just, let's just get into a time of, of quiet reflection we have a lot of reflecting to do, and I pray that um, our, 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 our attention will not be drawn to anything but just a simple question. What are you seeking this morning? Seriously, now, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? Where are your expectations in life? Why are you disappointed? I pray that this morning that you will recommit yourself to the reading and the listening of the Word of God. That you will once again see Jesus as your teacher, your Rabboni. Listen to His Word. Not just read it and even hear it, but listen closely. Listen to him call your name from the text. This morning I pray that you allow Jesus once again to be the resurrection and the life. That he is with you. He will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. And your disappointment, whatever it is, and I'm not trying to be trite once again, I'm not trying to gloss over your pain. No, I'm not. For it is real. But it's not the end. If there was no resurrection, then it would be the end. But it's not. He has risen. He has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. And we have ultimate hope in Jesus. Go to Him. He is praying for you. The Spirit of God wants to take your groanings and your pain, your suffering, to take it before the throne. Go to Him. Don't sit in the mud puddle of bitterness and anger and resentment. Go to Him. And let Him heal you.
This morning I pray that we will recommit ourselves to the Lordship of of Jesus Christ. We are so busy, so busy, that oftentimes we, we forget God. And we should always, always have it written on our hearts, our conscience, Deo Valente, Lord willing, Lord willing. Let's give God His rightful place as Lord of our lives. And this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and you want that hope, I pray that today that you'll realize that your sin has come between you and the holy and righteous God. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory, the plan of God. And we can't take that sin from between us and God. We can't do it. We can't do it through our good works. We'd have to be as good as God to do that. We can't pay the penalty for our sin. We, we can't do it. On our best day, our best behavior, it's like filthy rags in the sight of God. We can't do it. God knew that. And so that's why he sent Jesus Christ to become God in flesh, to live the perfect life that we were supposed to live, to die the death that we deserve, to pay the penalty for our sins that we should have paid, but we could not. And he did it for us by taking our sin to the cross, atoning for our sin, rising again on the third day. So if we repent of our sin and we confess our sin before him, believing that he died for our sins, that he can take our sin away, and only Christ can take our sin away, and we confess with our mouth that he rose again on the third day, we will be saved. And I pray that you will do that. We're going to give an invitation. And if you would like to know how to be saved, you come this morning. You come. We can show you through the Word of God how you can be saved. If you'd like to join Edwards Road Baptist Church, you come this morning. And we can lead you through that process, but you come. We can wait for you after the the close of the service, but you come. Father, we give this invitation to you. Lord, we we, uh, pack all of our expectations in you. For you are our hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Edwards Road Baptist Church. We hope you are meaningfully involved in a local church, but if you aren't, we would love to have you join us on Sunday mornings as we worship God and hear from His Word together. You can find more information about our church by visiting our website at edwardsroad.org.